Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to have a little fun today on this podcast with maybe a theme that you've never really thought about. One of the things that um, I've grown over the years to really appreciate and understand is what's called biblical theology. Now, when we think about biblical theology, you may think, well, obviously, that's what we want to do. We want to understand the Bible and have a good biblical theology. What I mean by that is the official or the technical name, biblical theology, means that you look at the grand story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you see it as one grand meta narrative of God's plan to redeem his people through Jesus. And so it's oftentimes called biblical theology, sometimes it's called covenant theology as opposed to maybe a dispensational viewpoint. Uh, you see, in dispensationalism, which I do not hold to, uh, premillennial dispensationalism, it's an it's a end times view. It's really the way that you view the Bible. It's a popular view. It's the view of the left behind books. Um, it's the view of Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, Jack Vanipy, almost all of the guys on TBN, John Hagee and others that you look at, Perry Stone, You even um, when you go into a bookstore, the popular view is the dispensational view, and this is the view that there's going to be a secret rapture of the church, the, the church is going to be taken up out of the earth, there's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation, and then Christ is going to set up a literal millennium on earth for a literal thousand years with a literal temple. Uh, now, there's a lot of different ways to interpret Revelation and to understand that. But one of the things that, that I used to believe when I was growing up, because I grew up kind of in a dispensational church culture, was the whole idea of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. I remember some Sunday school teachers that used to give me this. Um, this was back before the Internet, back in the 80s. They'd give me these pamphlets or these magazines that would talk about this underground movement to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem to prepare for the rapture. And that the, though they were even uh, raising red heifers to be able to reinstitute the sacrificial system. And they were going to go build this on the Dome of the Rock where the old temple was. And this was going to inaugurate the end times. And so there's all this fascination on the literal rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem so that the sacrificial system can be re-inaugurated in the millennium. And so it brings up a huge question, well, what, is the, what is this rebuilding of the temple? What is the temple supposed to be? What's it, what's it like according to the end times? And there's a lot of different viewpoints, but what I want to do in this podcast is give you a biblical theology of the idea of the temple. Now, before we even get into that, we, we often talk about the temple of God and we talk about the tabernacle and all these different images in, in the Old Testament. And it's the place where God chose to dwell or to live with his people, his manifest presence, often um, signified by the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of God. But what I want to do is I want to trace this whole idea of the temple from Genesis to Revelation and show you just how it all fits together. And maybe you've never thought about this before. Maybe you've never been exposed to this before. But I think it's very interesting when you take a biblical theology of the temple. And it really starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 with the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, you find that the Lord God, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the side and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 8, God as the sovereign potter, if you will, that, that forms Adam from the clay, puts him in Eden. God puts him there. And God is the hero. 
of the story. God's the creator. God creates the first man, breathes into him that Adam becomes a living soul. And so Adam is an image bearer. Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And so Adam is a representative of God on earth to serve as a king and a priest. Adam is to uh, subdue the earth, is to have dominion over the earth. He's to take care of the earth. He is God's representative. Now, it's interesting. The word Eden means abundant waters or luxurious or lush. The word garden means a fenced-in area. So when we think about the Garden of Eden, it's this luxurious, abundant, beautiful, fenced-in area with gold and onyx stone and four rivers. And God gave Adam this wonderful environment to enjoy him in perfect fellowship. But as you dig deeper into the significance of the Garden of Eden, you see that in a sense, the Garden of Eden from the very beginning is a prototype of the temple. It's a temple, if you will. It's a fenced-in area where God himself chose to dwell with his people. Now, his only people at that time were Adam and Eve, but God set up the parameters. God fenced them in. God chose to dwell specifically with them in the Garden of Eden. It says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And so it's this special place where God chooses to dwell with his people. In the Old Testament, as you get further in, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, the temple, the tabernacle, it's the place where God chose to dwell with His people. In the Garden of Life, I mean, the Garden of Eden, you see the Tree of Life. In the temple and the tabernacle, as we'll see here in a moment, you see the golden lampstand with the 12 branches, symbolizing giving light and life to Israel. And so from the very beginning... When God creates Adam as an image bearer and as one who is to have dominion over the earth and to represent God to the earth, Adam is somewhat of a king, a priestly king, a representative of God on earth to rule and to reign as God's representative, showing the world the glory of God. And he's been placed in this fenced-in area that's almost like a prototype of a temple where God chose to dwell with his people. And so from the very beginning, there is the Garden of Eden or the temple, a prototype of the temple where God chose to dwell. Now, what happened? You know the rest of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. And they are banished from the Garden of Eden. In other words, they are kicked out of the temple. No longer is this a fenced-in, lush area where they have perfect fellowship, dwelling in perfect union with God. But now they've been banished from that. They're separated from God. They have to be. Cur- the ground is cursed. It's no longer this luxuriant uh, place where God dwells with them in perfect fellowship. Their relationship with God's been fractured. Their relationship with each other's been fractured. Their relationship with the ground, the earth itself has been fractured and so they are in a sense banished from the temple god's glory and if you will leaves the temple leaves the garden of eden because of sin now you fast forward to the time of moses and god gives moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle or the tent of meeting so you go to exodus chapter 25 And you see that God is going to give instructions to Moses on how to build the sanctuary. And so in in Exodus 25, verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make. And you go on through almost the rest of the book of Exodus and you have explicit instructions from God on how to build this tabernacle, how to build this tent of meeting, how to build the sanctuary. But, but chapter 25, verse 8 is the key verse, that I may dwell in their midst. That's the key word, dwell. God is saying to Moses, listen, I want you to build this portable tent 
And this is going to be the the place on planet Earth, the physical structure on planet Earth, the fenced-in area, if you will, that I'm choosing to show my manifest presence to my people. And so in verses or in chapters 25 through 31, you have the instructions that God gives Moses on how to build it exactly. And then in chapters 35 through 40, you actually have the, the execution of the plans, the actual building of the tabernacle. Now, what was the tabernacle? Well, it was a portable shrine, a portable tent made of acacia wood, and it had curtains. Um, you, you had the holy place which was the outer, you, first of all, you had the outer court where you would enter, and then you would have the holy place, and you'd have the most holy place, but it was a perfect cube. The holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place was 30 feet by 15 feet, and in that, you had some articles of furniture that were very symbolic of what God specifically gave the Israelites to construct. So you had the altar of incense, where they would burn incense, a fragrant offering up to the Lord. It's where they would would worship and be in the presence of Yahweh. Now, it's interesting that all of these types and shadows that you see in the tabernacle, the furniture, uh, the worship, it all points forward to Christ. Remember, Jesus was given up as a fragrant offering to God. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us. You also have the lampstand. It was a pure gold lampstand. It was a source of light in the tabernacle. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the true light of the world. He's the lampstand. He's the one that's that's shining forth God's glory. There was the table with the bread of presence. It symbolized fellowship with the Lord. It was this daily bread that the priest had to keep going, the show bread, the, the bread of presence. And we also know that Jesus was called the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And then you go into the Holy of Holies, which was an exact cube. It it was 15 feet on each side. This is the only structure in the Bible that was an exact cube. 15 by 15 by 15. This was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. What was inside the Holy of Holies? Well, you had the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments. You had the law of God or the Word of God. Jesus is the living Word. On top of the mercy seat, you had the mercy seat or the lid. Uh, It was this um, golden lid or or seat um, that had cherubim carved on it. And it was where the blood of atonement was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. It It was basically the lid or the door. Um, And so Jesus is the door, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the lamb, he's the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. And above the the mercy seat were the the two cherubim representing God's holiness. And as you get to the very end of the book of Exodus, you find out what God did when the tabernacle was completed. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and following, after the Moses and, and the Israelites erected, built the tabernacle, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the, over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if a cloud was not taken up, then they did not see set out till the day when it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Very important. This was the manifest or the physical or the visible expression of where God chose to reveal Himself located in a geographic place on planet earth. Now, obviously, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. Psalm 139 teaches that. But in God's sovereignty, He chose during this Old Testament time to locate His glory, His manifest presence, symbolized by a cloud, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, in this tent of meaning, in this tabernacle. And it was portable. It moved with the Israelites. They were sojourners. They were wandering. It never really was permanent. It went with them wherever they went. 
And so the tabernacle, that's an important word, the tent, the tabernacle, was the portable place where God's glory, all of God's glory on earth resided. It's where God met his people. It's where God dwelt with his people. It's where they worshiped. It's where the sacrifices were were taken. It was the the holiest place on planet earth where all the fullness of God's glory dwelt in a tent. And you know the story of the Old Testament. The, the, The tabernacle moved from place to place and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. And then finally it gets back, it's captured by David. It gets to go back to Jerusalem. And then, um, David has this idea that he wants to build God a house. And God says, you don't need to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a lineage, a dynasty. And then David does not get to build the literal physical temple, but his son Solomon does. And so under Solomon's reign, there is now a move from a portable tent to an actual physical structure in Jerusalem made of wood and brick and gold and to the exact specifications of how God wanted to be built. And there still was the Holy of Holies. It was now permanent, but it was still a temple and it still served the same purpose. It's where God um, authorized the sacrifices. It's where God's glory dwelt. You see the glory cloud come down and it said the ministers could not minister. The priests could not minister in the temple because the glory cloud was so thick. And so you move from the Garden of Eden, the prototype of the temple where God dwells, and then Adam and Eve were kicked out because of sin, to the time of Moses all the way up to the time of Solomon where it's a portable tent. It's the tabernacle, but it's still God's manifest presence. And then under the time of Solomon, you have built the physical structure of the temple. But then there's an interesting thing that happens in the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, he has a prophecy where he sees the glory of the Lord vacate or leave the temple. You find this in Ezekiel chapter 10. He has this vision of these cherubim um, and a man standing there in the whirlwind. And right before his eyes, these these angelic beings were in this... um, bright glory cloud and the sound of wings and, and all this, these wheels is this, this very strange, almost um, th- th- this wonderful vision that Ezekiel has, but it's very interesting. You get to chapter 10 of Ezekiel verse 18. It said, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by Chebar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, each had four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearances I had seen by the Cheber Canal. Each of them went straight forward. And you go through chapter 11, and you see this image that the glory, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. That's a huge prophecy. Because this, this, is, this is a crisis in the moment of Israel. Because the temple represented everything to Israel. It was where God chose to meet them. It was where God chose to dwell with them. It was where God's glory resided. It was where the sacrificial system was taken care of. It was where the law was held. Everything about God's word, about God's law, about God's glory, about God's sacrificial system was bound up in the temple. And Ezekiel sees this dramatic image of the glory of God leaving the temple. The glory of God just picks up and leaves. And so you've got this vacant temple. It's just this shell. It's still a structure. It's still a building, but God's not there. God doesn't dwell there. And here's the reason why. Israel had become so sinful, so rebellious, so idolatrous under the leadership of their wicked kings that God says enough's enough. You've rebelled. 
you've become idolaters. You've become wicked. I'm vacating. I'm leaving. My glory is packing up and leaving your worship. And then you know what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marches into Jerusalem, ransacks the temple, destroys the temple, burns down the temple, and then Israel is punished. They're banished. They're kicked out, if you will. They go into 70 years of exile. Very similar to what happened to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were in God's temple in, the, in, in Eden, if you will, a symbolic prototype of the temple. They had perfect fellowship, but because of sin, they were kicked out. Same thing now with Israel. They were worshiping God in the temple. The temple's destroyed. God's glory leaves the temple. They are kicked out of the land. They're kicked out of the promised land. They're banished, if you will, for 70 years of exile. And so you've got the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. And so it's just the shell. No glory. No, no glory cloud. No Shekinah glory. No God's manifest presence. It's a dark day for Israel. But then at the end of Ezekiel, in chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel sees a vision of a rebuilt temple. Now, this has led many dispensationalists to believe that, okay, Ezekiel sees a temple. This must be a literal, physical, rebuilt temple during the end times. And they take that to see, mean it was a literal temple that's going to be built sometime during the end times. I think if you carefully read Ezekiel 40 through 48, you will see that it's very similar to what we're going to look at here in Revelation, that it's talking about a spiritual temple. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. The temple is where God chose to dwell. So think about that word dwell, the dwelling place, the living place of God the dwelling place of God, in the temple, in the tabernacle. So dwelling, the dwelling place of God, big key word. Other key word, glory, the glory of God dwelling with his people. That's what the temple was. That's what the tabernacle was. It was the manifest presence, the full glory of God, the shining forth of God's glory in a localized place, in a structure, in a tabernacle, in a temple where God chose to dwell. And so the Old Testament ends with tension. The Old Testament ends with God's glory had vacated the temple. And they went in 70 years of exile. And yes, under King Cyrus of Persia, they were allowed to come back. And under Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall. And under Zerubbabel and Zechariah, they rebuild the temple. But you never get a hint at the end of the Old Testament when the temple's rebuilt that the glory of God ever returned to the temple. You never find a text saying the glory of God returned to the temple. It was kind of empty worship. It was like they were going through the motions. Yeah, the physical structure was built, but the glory of God did not return to the temple. And so what's the point? You may have a physical structure there, but if God's not there to meet with you, if God's glory's not there, if he's not dwelling there, then what's the point? It's just empty religion. And so the Old Testament ends in Malachi with a disobedient kind of backslidden generation. Walls rebuilt, temples rebuilt, but the glory of God never returns to the temple. And then you have those years of silence. But then you've got the opening words to the Gospel of John. And John knows his Old Testament. And John is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and John does something marvelous when he talks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Now, I want you to think about the images we just talked about. What words are equated with temple? Tabernacle, that's one. The tabernacle, the tent. What's another word? Glory. What's another word? Dwelt. So three words, tabernacle, glory, and dwelt. And what was it? It was the physical place on earth where the fullness of God's glory resided with his people. Now, let's read John's gospel. Because what, are, what is everybody in the New Testament expecting? Oh, yes, under Herod, they rebuilt the temple. But what is everybody waiting for? 
What are these Jews, these Israelites waiting for with their Messiah? The Messiah is going to come and he's going to rebuild the temple and the glory of the Lord is finally going to return. So they're putting their hope in the glory of God, returning to a physical structure so that they can worship God in the fullness of the good old days like it was in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes and shatters that paradigm. Listen to John 1, 14 and following. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. That's talking about Jesus. In the incarnation, when Jesus left the glories of heaven, was born of a virgin, Mary, and came in the fullness of time, fully God, fully man, in the flesh. How does John describe the coming of Jesus to planet earth in the flesh. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally in the Greek text, tabernacled, pitched his tent. There's no accident that John uses that exact same wording, tying back to the fact that the full manifest presence of God was localized in the tabernacle. And what does John say? We have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did I say were the three key words related to the tabernacle or the temple? Temple or tabernacle, dwell, and glory. You find those words right here in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt, dwelling, tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's the the issue. Is the end times temple that's to be rebuilt a physical structure or is it Jesus as the living temple, the fullness of God in the flesh, manifesting the glory of God and the actual dwelling place of God. So here's the point. The end times temple is not a structure physically. The end times temple is Jesus and what he's spiritually building as a people. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in Jesus, in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you can have all these arguments about the end times temple being rebuilt. Is it going to be rebuilt on the Dome of the Rock? Are they getting the red heifer together? All that stuff doesn't matter because the end times temple has come in Jesus. He's the temple of God. He's the dwelling of God. He's the glory of God. He's the fullness of God. He is the end times temple. And so the question was, well, when is the glory going to return to the temple? That the glory vacated the temple in Ezekiel. When's it going to come back? The glory returned to the temple when Jesus Christ was born in the flesh. He is the temple. And the glory of God returns to the temple because Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. Now, now you may ask the question, well, how do you know, Pastor Sean, that Jesus is the temple? I mean, where in the Bible does it say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. John tells us in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Listen to these words. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is coming in and he's cleansing the temple. 
the literal temple. And the Jews say, why are you doing this? Who gives you authority to do this? Who gives you the right to come in and mess with our temple? And Jesus says, listen, you don't understand. You're going to kill me. You're going to kill me in my body. You're going to kill me in my flesh. You're going to crucify me. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And they don't understand what he's talking about. They think he's talking about the literal temple. They're like, listen, listen, Jesus, you're crazy. It's taken 46 years for Herod to build this structure. What makes you think that you can come and, and, and do any better than that? And Jesus says, you're not, you're not understanding it. I'm not talking about a literal temple. I'm talking about my body. I am the temple. I am the fullness of God. I am where God's glory resides. I'm the fullness of God. I am the temple. So John, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understands Jesus to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, where the glory of God resides. So Jesus himself is the end times temple. But yet there's a fuller expression of this when you go through the rest of the New Testament. So John understood the end times temple to be Jesus. But let's talk about Paul. How does Paul view this whole end times temple? And what I'm trying to show you is that every time the temple shows up in the New Testament, it's never talking about a physical structure. It's always talking about either Jesus or his people. What does Paul say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you, plural, y'all, if you're from the South, you guys, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells? There's the key word, dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what's the end times temple? It's believers. It's the church. Paul's very emphatic. You are God's temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Where does God choose to dwell? Well, when Christ was on earth, God chose to dwell fully in Christ. Now that Christ has died, rose again, and ascended back up into heaven, He's not physically here on earth anymore. Now, because of the, the temple being localized either in Jerusalem or the temple being localized in the body of Christ, now Christ has poured out His Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells in every single believer and so individually as a believer, we are the temple of God. But corporately as the church, we're also the dwelling place of God. So spiritually, through the Holy Spirit, God is building His end times temple. And it is actually believers coming to faith in Christ, being connected to Jesus. Later on in 1 Corinthians, he says in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. How about Ephesians? What does Paul say in Ephesians? What temple analogy does he use to talk about the church? Ephesians 2, 19-22. Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, there's some building terminology, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now Paul uses some very key terminology here. You're being you're growing into this holy temple. You're being built together into a dwelling place by the Holy Spirit. Is Paul talking about a literal physical structure in Jerusalem with the reinstitution of the sacrificial system? Or is he taking this temple imagery and applying it to us as the church? And we're connected to Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of God. So John sees the end times temple as Jesus and his people. Paul sees the end times temple as the church being built together as a holy place, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. Well, what about Peter? Okay, let's talk about the three top uh, New Testament epistle writers, if you will. John, Peter, and Paul. What does Peter say? 
Well, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Peter says, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. We're being built into a spiritual house, none other than a temple. So Peter looks at the same analogy and says, listen, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundation and he's building a house. He's building a temple. He's building a structure, if you will, where his glory is going to reside, where his Holy Spirit's going to reside, where there's going to be worshipers. And what is that? Is it a literal physical structure in Jerusalem or is it the body of Christ? Is it believers? Okay, so almost every time the temple is referred to, this end times temple, John refers to it as Jesus. Paul refers to it as the body of Christ, believers. Peter refers to it as the body of Christ, believers. It's never discussed or it's never um, talked about or explained as this rebuilt structure in Jerusalem during the end times. Okay, well, let's get to Revelation. You say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about Revelation because John is going to address this. All right, let's talk about Revelation. The, the, the idea of a temple does show up in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, 12, he's talking to the church in Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Now, Christ says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, do we take this literally? If we take this literally, that means that you and I become some piece of marble or stone and we're literally put into a physical structure as a pillar. No, I mean, even the language that Jesus uses here is metaphorical. It's symbolic. There is this temple, this new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven and to the believer, whoever comes, to the one who endures to the end, to the Christian, we are going to be a pillar in the temple. I think it's almost the same imagery that Peter uses. We are being built together as a spiritual house. What's a pillar? A pillar is, if you look back at ancient Greek architecture, a pillar is, is, is a structure or part of the temple that, that holds it up. It means that we're embedded, we're engrafted, we're part of the temple. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to be spiritually part of this new temple, this new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. It's coming down out of heaven. Okay, so the question then becomes, okay, if it's a spiritual temple and it's coming down out of heaven, then why in the world will we ever care about a physical structure being built in Jerusalem right now? Because even the Bible says it's going to come down out of heaven. Okay, let's go to where that's talked about. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Because this is where we, John sees the vision. And I want you to notice what he says. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their people. You see that wording dwell? Okay, so John sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride and God will dwell with them. Now, is the new Jerusalem a literal city coming down from heaven or is it the bride of Christ? Which is it? If it's the bride of Christ, then it has to be us, humans, Christians. Is it a literal city or is it believers? Okay, I think that if you take the description of the temple analogy that Peter uses, that Paul uses, that we're being built, we are being built 
into this spiritual house. And so when John in apocalyptic literature turns around and sees this city coming down from heaven, is it a literal city or is it just the metaphor expanded from the very final time here in the end of the age, the new heavens and the new earth, to see God's people? If we allow the New Testament writers to interpret for us the meaning of the temple, we have to take it as symbolic. And we also find out that we actually get the descriptions of the city. So you go down to verse 9, chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's going to show us the bride, the church. That's what what John's expecting to see. I'm going to go see the church, the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Okay, so what is it? Is it the bride or is it the new city, the heavenly city? And the answer is yes. John says, hey, the, the, the angel says, we're going to go show you the church. And what does John see? John sees the city. So is it a literal city or is it the church? It's a mixed metaphor that oftentimes happens in apocalyptic literature that basically what John is seeing is, is he's seeing the church. Now, let's, let's explore the architecture of this church, of the city, of the temple. Okay, Verse 11, having the glory of God It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Where else in the Old Testament, as we look through here, did the full glory of God reside? The tabernacle, the temple. That was the place on earth where the fullness of the Shekinah glory of God resides. And here we have, in the new creation, God's full glory is not residing in a literal tabernacle on planet earth. It's not residing in Jesus in the flesh while he's on planet earth. Now in the fullness of God's economy, God's plan in the new heavens and the new earth, where does the fullness of God's glory now reside? In his church, in his people. In a sense, we now are the holy of holies. We have direct access to God. You've got jasper stones. You've got a great and high wall, this picture of eternal security. You've got 12 gates and 12 foundations, symbolism of the 12 tribes of of Israel and the the 12 New Testament apostles, basically saying that it's the church, the the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God all together. And I want you to notice that the, the, the city is a perfect cube. Verse 16 The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. It's a perfect cube. Now, does this mean that it's literally those dimensions? Or is John saying, listen, it's a perfect cube. Where else in the Bible is there the only other structure that's a perfect cube? It's the Holy of Holies. Remember, God told Moses to make it according to his specific instructions. And it was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, a perfect cube. It was the Holy of Holies. It was the dwelling place of God. And now what you have is the new city, the new Jerusalem, the church is symbolically a cube, meaning that we now as the church are in the Holy of Holies, in a sense, symbolically, because the full glory of God now resides with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 22 through 27. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now, which is it, John? I see no temple. I see a temple. I see a city. Is it really a city? Is it the people of God? Is it a city? There is no temple because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. This is apocalyptic literature. There's mixed metaphors. It's the whole idea that 
there is no need to have a physical temple because Jesus is the temple. The people of God are the temple. And we are so mingled together in the new heavens and the new earth in perfect unhindered fellowship in this perfect cube-like symbolic structure of the Holy of Holies that there is no need for a physical temple. The city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's this whole idea that God's going to give light, and the light's going to be Jesus as the light of the world. There's going to be no darkness, no hiding, no fear. Um, there's going to, the, the gates are going to be shut because there is no evil. Um, we don't have to fear rape or murder or lying or backstabbing or any of the atrocities we see on planet Earth because we will be in the perfect presence of God. Who's not in the city? Who's not in the temple? Who's not in the new heavens and the new earth? One thing about the book of Revelation that you've got to understand is that there is no ambiguity. There's no middle ground. There's no halfway. Jesus says there, or not Jesus, at the end of verse, in the, the chapter, verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is in the new heavens and the new earth, experiencing unhindered fellowship in the glory of God, in the holy of holies, in heaven, with Jesus as the light? Only those whose been, names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Believers. Where are non-believers? They're, they're in hell. Non-believers are not there. Sinners who have not repented, they're not in heaven. Now, how did the Bible start? What did I tell you? That we, went, oh, we started all this, this discussion with Genesis. In Genesis, there was a garden, a prototype of a temple. In the temple, you had perfect fellowship with God, and you had the tree of life and rivers and so the garden if you remember was a prototype of the temple god dwelling with his people in perfect fellowship in this fenced off area like a temple now let's get to chapter 22 of revelation verse 1 then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the streets of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever this is the bookend of the bible it starts in eden with the tree of life it ends in the new heavens and the new earth with the tree of life adam forfeited that because of his sin now in the new heavens and the new earth because of the death burial and resurrection of christ his people have been redeemed and now we are back in the presence of God, redeemed, able to eat from the tree of life. There's no curse. Remember the curse in Genesis chapter 3? The Bible here says there's no curse. But one of the glorious things there in verse 4 says, we will see His face. You know, Moses in Exodus chapter 33 wanted to see the full glory of God. And God said, no, you can't do that. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and you can look at my backside glory. But the one thing that I look most forward to in heaven is full, unhindered, precious access face-to-face -face with Jesus and all of His glory and not fearing being incinerated, not fearing being burned up, no fear of guilt, no fear of judgment, but perfect fellowship because He died in our place. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
because we shall see him as he is. We'll be owned by Christ. This whole idea of being sealed on our foreheads represents God's salvation, God's election, God's sealing us for eternity. We won't have to fear darkness because Jesus will be our light and we will reign forever and ever in the new heavens and the earth, in this holy of holies, in this temple, as God's people forever and ever, looking at His full glory and God dwelling with us forever and ever. That is a biblical theology of the temple. What started in Genesis and is traced through the tabernacle, through the literal structure of the temple, the glory leaving the temple, the destruction of the temple, the glory returning to the temple and Jesus who is the temple, the fullness of God, and then His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, sending the Holy Spirit now to dwell in His people who are being built into a temple. And then one day, the very fullness of the new heavens and the new earth, we will be the temple in the Holy of Holies, living in the very presence of God, seeing the glory of God as the light of Christ forever and ever. And so that gets me excited when you see these themes tied throughout the fabric of the Old Testament. And that's in the New Testament. That's what biblical theology does for you. It ties together these grand themes that are woven throughout the scriptures. And it's no accident. These aren't coincidences. This is how God has ordained it to happen. And so this may be new for you, maybe be exciting for you. I encourage you to go study some biblical theology um, there's a lot of resources out there that you can look at that. Um, but that's just what I kind of wanted to share on this podcast was to be an uplifting, um, an uplifting podcast related to what our future hope is in the new heavens and the new earth and how God has planned it from eternity past and has given us types and shadows in this temple analogy. So I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you could go to iTunes and give me a review and rating, that would really be helpful. If you want to ask me some questions, and maybe I can answer some questions on a future podcast, uh, you can go to my website, seancole.net. You can find all of my contact information there, my Facebook, my email, my Twitter feed. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. And may He bless you and keep you. And may you look forward to that day when we get to experience the fullness of the light and glory of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth when we will have unhindered eternal access to Him face to face and experience the sweetness of what it means to be His people. God bless you.